Hello, and thanks very much for joining us again on Mum Will the Planet Die Before I Do. In this series, we've explored our carbon footprint through finances, energy, fast fashion and agriculture. But what about food? In today's episode, we chat to Professor Sarah Briddle, who turned her back on her high-profile successful career as an astrophysicist to focus on what we eat. She's now the Professor of Food, Climate and Society at the University of York in the UK. Sarah joined us to tell us why she made a radical career shift and how the battle of food in this climate crisis is not about vegans versus farmers, but knowing the power we all have as consumers to bring about change. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. Um, Katie and I are a bit intimidated by you because we were doing our research notes and reading your CV and it's like, boom, like what haven't you done? Your brain is huge. Um, and you were an astrophysicist. And then I think about five years ago, you had a big shift, a radical shift in your career. Just tell us what happened. Well, thanks so much for having me. And uh, yeah, I, I basically finished a big project, I suppose. And that was kind of, you know, it'd been like at least 10 years I've been working towards that. So it sort of felt great to finish the project, but also like, what am I going to do now? And I was kind of, yeah, trying to figure out you know what what's the what's my new direction and what's what am I doing next and really about the same time as that other things happen so um a former mentor of mine um turned out he was terminally ill and sadly died um and I guess I was like yeah quite uh, obviously very upset about that and thinking about gosh why am I still here what am I going to do with my life that I'm actually here but also about the same time my kids started at school um, and I guess I had a bit more space to think generally, as I'm sure a lot of parents discover, um, but also, you know, thinking about them in the future and them saying to me, you know, what did you do about climate change, mummy? And really just feeling like I needed a good answer to that question. And somehow doing astrophysics didn't seem like it was really going to help with that. So that's when I started learning about climate change, which my, my former mentor had, had really switched career to work on climate change um, partway through his career. And so I was trying to like work out, you know, what he'd been doing. And really then food came up as this big thing within that, which really got me absolutely hooked. Wow, there's a lot of things that were going on at that time. Let's just break that down a little bit if we can, because your mentor we're talking about is Professor David McKay. And you talk about the impact that his death had on you. But before that, I suppose the impact of his work and his shift as well. So what was it that he did that you thought mm, this sort of had a bit of a light bulb moment for you? Well, I think the way that he he showed up in the world was always really inspiring to me. Um, it was life changing for me when I first met him when I was about 16 and I was trying to decide about university. And it was a big influence on me that the way that he really um, is very was very challenging very open very keen to get to the heart of the matter but also an amazing teacher an amazing kind of mentor that really didn't want to give people the answers wanted to get other people to figure out for themselves what they thought the answer should be and that was his real philosophy throughout everything he did um, he was a computer scientist um, but then you know part way through his career became really concerned about fossil fuels and the big shift that we need to make in terms of where we get our energy from you know how are we going to power things if we're not using fossil fuels and um, so that really led to his book on um, uh, 
uh, climate change um, without the hot air. So this is really about energy without the hot air. And it's an amazing book, which really tries to sort of make it really, you know, break down quite complicated ideas into much simpler ways to present it and lots of examples and lots of ways to help people to really understand how to do those calculations themselves. So yeah, lots of things there, yeah. You mentioned with him how he showed up and I find that really interesting. Like you obviously saw him, his energy and his career redirection when he became more fluent with the climate crisis and the, the emergency that we face. And that obviously then in turn had an impact on you, but that that kind of requires some kind of um, emotional openness or just an ability to think, okay, I'm gonna take stock. I'm gonna look at what I'm doing. I'm gonna feel the urgency of the situation and I'm gonna refocus. Like that's quite a, that's quite a brave thing to do, especially being inspired by a mentor, but to do that personally in your own life as well. Did that kind of feel brave at the time or did it feel, the right thing to do that's a good question um for me personally I suppose I just started just reading about things and I just got obsessed with the topic so it was sort of from a personal point of view I was just really got into this and just couldn't stop reading about it so um I was still doing the day job but then you know I'd be like oh you know what about this if I ate this what would be the climate impact of that or like what else you know actually how bad how bad is climate change like I'd not I'd not really thought about it before. Like I was so busy thinking about astrophysics. I wasn't thinking about, you know, our planet basically. Um, so I wasn't one of these people who was always campaigning or anything. I just completely ignored it. So it was kind of like a big epiphany to me to be like, oh my goodness, this is actually, I mean, sorry, I don't want to depress your listeners, but I think it's well known now, isn't it? <laughs> it's, 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 I mean, all the science has been there for such a long time yeah. and it, it, it it's just, it's just so bad and somehow we all you know certainly say six seven years ago when I was looking into this for the first time it felt like there was a lot of head in the sand stuff going on um you know certainly then and and, and to some extent now so I was kind of just shocked and I just didn't really feel I had it wasn't trying to be brave I just did, it was almost like the opposite like oh my goodness like like not doing something would have felt brave you know yeah you said that there was a moment with your kids that probably propelled you straight into that world where you can't just bury your head in the sand. Uh, what happened? Well, I think it was just really just imagining it because I suppose they were too young then when they started school to be asking me actual questions about it. So I was just sort of, I tend to be a sort of long-term kind of thinker generally. Um, and so, yeah, I tend to sort of sit there and think, what will I be thinking in 20 years time? That's the kind of thing that I do. And so I was just like, just thinking how can I look myself in the mirror how can I sleep at night how, you know what will the world be like in 20 years time and how will I you know look back on this moment how will I feel when I think gosh you know I just spent my whole time doing astrophysics I just I just I just couldn't live with it but thinking about it and then acting on it is a different yeah. thing so how what course of act I mean you took a course of action but how easy was that or was it easy I mean I don't know how you just suddenly go from thinking about it to suddenly going right I'm going to absolutely change my career as an award-winning high-profile astrophysicist and I'm going to now look at food systems and climate change I'm going to write a book about it too 
I mean, yeah, it makes it sound like there's one moment, doesn't it? Whereas actually these things are just a mess. Um, I mean, there was definitely like several, like at least three years when I was just sort of reading about it out of interest and then just thinking I must be nuts, like even spending this amount of time on it because, you know, this, this is really not something that I'm ever going to be able to do. Um, and I sort of dreamed about writing a book because I wanted to find the book. I was looking for the book on this that would tell me what to eat, right? Oh, wow. So I wanted to know the climate. I wanted to find the book that was like David's book on energy, but about food. And I was Googling it and I was like, like buying books. And I was reading all the books and there are some great books out there, but it wasn't quite what I was looking for. And I ended up then reading lots of research papers. So yeah, it was just, I didn't ever, it took me a long time to think I could actually do this as a career it felt like I was probably like you know spending quite a lot of time on something that I probably shouldn't be which I quite like <laughs> I'm a bit avoided sometimes so yeah it was it was it it felt like gradually increasingly felt more like having jumped off a cliff without knowing where where I was going to land and it still feels a little bit like that but on the other hand the alternative seemed worse you know the alternative seemed even worse than that that's interesting to me, that long term thinking that you were describing, that you that that's the way your brain works and you think, what's the future going to look like, even though it was scary and even though you were thinking I've got to um, do, go into this whole new area, that drive that you had to think, I can't not do this is really interesting to me. Um, were you able to use some of your your skills and your research methods from astrophysics? to kind of apply it to food systems and climate crisis? I, I did astrophysics, what I was doing was measuring, like analyzing images, like looking up at galaxies. And at first I thought, right, I'm good at analyzing images. I'm gonna look down instead of up. And we're gonna look at farmers fields. And we're gonna look at like how we can improve the crop that you've gotten in a given field because you've got like weeds that we could detect and we could look at the, you know, the lots of things about the, the soil and, and the, the how much water there is and so on and I was trying to think how can we for a given crop that's growing in a particular field how can we improve the yield of that because it was using this exact skill that I already had seemed like a, you know it seemed like a good fit it, it told a nice story I like told my head of department you know instead of looking up I'm going to look down I want to do this thing and he's like great go for it you know but then the more I got into it then the more I realized that actually you know, just improving the yield of, you know, the amount of food that we produce from a particular field is like missing the main story. I was just so far off piste by that point. I'm like, might as well keep going, you know. So then I was mm -hmm. looking at how different foods, like comparing different types of food. And then that became like my interest. And increasingly it stopped using like a lot of my main skills, which was like really analyzing images. But actually in a 20 year kind of career in astrophysics, a lot of what you're doing you know, as you get further in any career, I guess, tends to be more like, you know, writing emails to people that don't annoy people, <laughs> giving presentations about your vision for things, you know, yeah. the stuff that happens in any career, the more you do on it, I guess. So increasingly, that's actually the skills that I had been using, and those skills obviously completely transferable. So there's quite a lot of, of things, actually, I think people don't often underestimate how transferable their skills are, I think. It's so true. I think, I think both of us, Katie, you and I have, have realised that. I mean, Sarah, I don't know if you know, but Katie was um, a journalist at the War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague and is now a gardener because of the climate <laughs> crisis, I would say, um, wow. and being a parent, but completely switched it up. I don't know, Katie, if you're like investigating your plants in the same way you do your journalism, probably you do, knowing you, you probably Well, I think do. when you have a, a particular kind of mind, you know, you, Sarah, obviously have that that kind of mind that you're 
you're looking into really deep issues about the the universe the you know when you, you when you have that kind of mind and then you see this massive crisis that humanity faces that then you kind of like just pull focus to you know go downwards I love that I yeah my my journey is incomparable but yes I was a journalist um writing about war crimes atrocities and then wanted to look at plants instead but when you start looking at plants and soil and you see the impact of the climate emergency and drought and flood and warming you know it's all just inescapable isn't it and then that's why we started this podcast because I was crying on the phone to Babs every day about the climate emergency um but I don't know how you found that in your own resilience Sarah when you did pull focus and you looked from the stars to the to the fields and you've seeing you're tracking the impact of warming of erratic weather patterns how how has that been for you emotionally to do that because I imagine that's more harder I think yeah (laughs) I mean astrophysics you know it's emotional in terms of wonder but yeah in terms of like its impact on your everyday life obviously not so much um so yeah there's definitely more emotional connection more real life coming into it like you know that the research I was doing was also linked with you know what am I actually going to be eating and you know what what and then you know talking to people you know talking about astrophysics you're not going to offend people right you're not going to like go oh dark matter dark energy and then people are like oh really um you know whereas if you're talking about food then people you know you potentially are going to upset people um people's livelihoods are involved like farmers you know they're, they're heavily invested and um, maybe there's lots of different values uh, that people have got around food so it becomes a kind of minefield as well when, you, when you're talking to people but I suppose for me you know the most the biggest thing emotionally is like if I feel like I'm doing something useful towards something then that that is the best emotional place I can be in because for all of the potential negatives at least I feel like I'm doing something so yeah that, that calms me down. <laughs> well, well let's talk about that doing that food systems food you are obsessed with this for people that don't understand what food systems and how that impacts on climate change just give us a bit of an overview if you can about what we eat and the choices that we make and how that can have a big impact. Yeah, so in terms of climate change, you know, we hear so much about fossil fuels, but actually people are quite surprised, I find, when they hear that about one third, like 33%, whatever, of all climate change is caused by food. So that includes clearing land for agriculture, so deforestation. It includes then um, fertilisers we put on the ground to grow food for humans and food for animals. Um, It includes the livestock, you know, um, burping and um, manure management, packaging, transportation, cooking, waste, all of those things add up to make one third of all climate change. So we definitely... extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people don't seem to, it doesn't seem to be always in that public narrative. And I guess, like, yeah, clearly we do need to stop burning fossil fuels. But when we do that, most of the climate impacts from food are not actually to do with fossil fuels and they'll still be there. So actually, you know, imagine that we were to, you know, stop burning fossil fuels. We'd still have the contribution of food to climate change. Food would still cause two degrees of warming by the end of the century just from food alone. Um, and so we actually, you know, have to transform our food system. Otherwise, climate change, well, climate change is already now starting to transform our food system. So we kind of have a choice. But on the other hand, it is going to change whatever we do. But food is life. We all need it. Um, and when you say changing the system, what do you mean? 
well, we need to be changing the way that we produce food, but we also need to be changing the balance of what we're eating. So the other thing that people are quite surprised at is the size of the difference between different types of food. So, you know, people probably not surprised to hear that like a steak causes more climate change than like beans, for example. But if you were to compare a typical, um, say, eight ounce steak, so quite a large steak and chips dinner with a microwave potato and beans dinner, you could have 20 microwave potato and beans dinners and that would cause the same amount of climate change as one eight ounce steak and chips dinner. So the size of the difference often is quite surprising to people. And that's also like a sign of hope, right? Because if all food contributed about the same to climate change, then we'd be stuck. But actually, you know, do we need an eight ounce steak? If you were to halve the size of that steak or share it with someone else, you've just halved the climate impact of what you're eating. And yeah. who doesn't like a potato and beans dinner? That sounds like my best well, dinner ever. Well, actually, there are people who don't want that because I gave, I, I said this, um, I gave that example in a talk about five years ago and I got an email from somebody, uh, a, a vegan saying, oh, you know, I, you're, you're making it the idea that, you know, all vegans are eating potato and beans and that's really depressing and you should you know here are some recipes you might enjoy and so on <laughs> um, which was really actually we've, we've corresponded since then and um, it's been a really great connection but um yeah I absolutely love potato and beans so I wasn't trying to make it sound bad at all <laughs> that's interesting though because you described um you used the word minefield um a little bit earlier talking about this so I that kind of that example gives me a bit more of an understanding it must be hard for you for you when you're trying to maybe describe different kind of eating patterns that people could be adopting to help with the climate crisis it must be difficult for you as you were saying with farmers with vegans with non-vegans but to, to tell us more about that how, how has that been for you well what I found when I first started so initially like when I started getting into this I started going to conference academic conferences on food and I'd be like hello I'm an astrophysicist <laughs> and then, you know see where that goes um, but also I was listening right and I'm, I'm, I'm in these talks and the academic narrative it was very very clear that you know um, some types of meat particularly beef for example causes a lot more climate change than other things um, and that was a, the you know that was very clear in the academic talks, but actually as a member of the public back then, that wasn't what people really were saying. And I felt there's a big disconnect between what people were comfortable saying in the sort of research field and what people would be prepared to say, like on a radio show or on a podcast like this. And so that was really fascinating to me. And that was why I wanted to get more quantitative and to get, you know, get some of that conversation going, because it felt like a bit of an elephant in the room, as it were, um, that, you know, we, nobody wants to offend anybody else really that's not where we're starting from but at the same time we need to do something so we need to talk about it and I think for me that was again a big inspiration from David Mackay that you know this idea that rather than you know flinging around you know big statements we actually need to talk about numbers because then we're actually all on the same page rather than sort of mudslinging between mm, like vegans and farmers for example yeah it's a huge task, actually. It's a huge undertaking that I think you've embarked on, Sarah, to um, look at food in this way. Because food is a very personal thing. And I'm just thinking about, for me, I mean, I spend my days, especially because I've got a little one who's four, thinking about food all the time, shopping, thinking, what are we going to put on the plate? And actually, time's always away and it's tricky. So trying to think about eating healthy is one thing then adding to that the layer of thinking about how we can 
minimize our carbon footprint through food is another thing. I, I, it feels like the tasks and the challenges is getting more and more and more as a parent. Um, I don't know. I think that, I don't know if that's a cop out or if you've heard this before, but what should I do with that? Yeah, I think it is a challenge. I mean, I find it a challenge. You know, the more you know, the more difficult it is to even go to the supermarket, right? And it's hard enough as it is. Um, so, you know, I think some awareness is, is you know, broad brush things are useful. And if you're if you're obsessive like me about this, then you definitely want to get into it. But at the same time, you know, you've got other factors. You've got time. You've got whether people are actually going to eat the stuff once you've made it. You've got that risk of, you know, if it's rejected, then you've got to find another meal because, you know... <laughs> you can't just suddenly parents be nightmare everywhere yeah. yeah yeah and food waste of course is a big thing so you don't be wasting <clears> food so a lot of these things then start to actually become like um trade-offs between different different things so we haven't got time to do that yeah, every single meal so I think you know some of this narrative is about individuals learning more but actually the bigger story the bigger goal needs to be a systemic change which means that we're going to actually be it's going to be easier easier for us all to make good decisions basically um so you know if we take the example of sugar you couldn't have a sugary drinks tax if people weren't on board with the idea that sugar is bad for our health i mean it's already a bit you know like is everyone happy with that but actually we needed to have that conscious public consciousness that sugar is an issue uh, maybe people are aware that it causes obesity and then this idea that we're now going to have the government imposing a tax on us or imposing a tax on the, the drinks companies is, is palatable now we don't have that same kind of public awareness and public onboardness with doing something about the climate impacts of food at the moment so for example the uh, national food strategy that was commissioned by the government uh, a couple of years ago by by henry dimbleby that actually specifically said we did not consider advocating there would be a meat tax because we knew that it was completely off the table there's no way a politician is going to stand up and have a meat tax and i'm not specific i'm not advocating a meat tax but you know the climate impacts of foods is very different for different foods we've got to do something about that maybe it's to do with changing the subsidy system but it's still there's there's things that we can do systemically that make it easier for us all to make good decisions but we do need the public to be on board with that so how do we get the public on board with that general idea that we're going to do something about the impact of food on climate change well those systemic things happen to us though i mean i'm just thinking now about you know, some of the fields around us locally that are so dry already, you know, we know probably just a few years into the future, there might be, you know, more crop failure events. And, you know, I, I just wonder with that kind of systemic changes that are necessary, are some of them going to come anyway? Are we, are we too, are we too late? Or do we still have time to make those kind of preemptive changes? Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. What's the next 10 years going to bring? So uh, uh, my sort of current um, obsession alongside what we've been talking about is the potential of catastrophic food system disruption to the UK. You know, what if we have um, a pandemic at the same time as you know global, you know, maybe more global. Um, I'm trying to not use the word war, but um, you know, <laughs> um, geopolitical instability, uh, the technical term. Um, so you know, what if we have you know a couple of these things happening at the same time? You know, how prepared are we as a country to deal with that kind of thing, and what would we do? And I think that ultimately, you know, it, it depends on what, what random events happen. Um, we're definitely going to get extreme weather 
and that's a bigger issue than the actual warming right the fact that we're going to have more droughts as you yeah. say more um you know rain in large doses but also really fascinating <clears throat> that the, the the physics of, of modeling the climate says that actually with the north pole warming um disproportionately fast the weather systems actually tend to be more spread out so that if you've got bad weather in one country you're also likely to have bad weather or you know for example um, heat waves across the whole of the northern hemisphere has happened more than once now so this actually could knock out the food production for a much larger area in a given year and at the moment you know the way that we've optimized the food system is very much so that we've got this just-in-time food system which is providing food from quite a long way away in a very small number of days um, and so we're not you know we're not geared up for that kind of thing so you know how do we um start to think about what would we do in that kind of situation and what I find uh, that's quite depressing all, all the things I've just said but <clears throat> I think that's why we need to think about it now rather than just waiting but also when bad things happen that's when good things can happen so you know to change the system now that's hard because it involves some people losing out right if we if any kind of change there's winners and losers but actually when something bad happens then you're kind of all starting a little bit from scratch so there's this concept of build back better um which i really like that actually if we if we've thought this through then as we come out if we if we have a crisis which you know i hope we don't but if we if we do have a crisis we have the opportunity to come out of that in a much better better shape than actually we went into it yeah i suppose it's like hitting reset mode isn't it and then an opportunity to do things better as you've described but the problem could be that we don't do things better or learn the lessons and then then that leaves us in a catastrophic situation but I mean you are bringing about awareness as, as you've just discussed with us on this food system thing sorry thing made it sound really throwing I didn't mean it like I'm that sorry. but what I meant was like <clears throat> on the ideas that that we have to change things up what do you eat Sarah well I did when I first read about this actually I went vegan for a year I was like you know so shocked but then when I looked into it in more detail obviously you know it's more complicated than that um but you know I eat I love beans I love lentils I love chickpeas um and you know so I I try to get a lot of those into my diet you know maybe like a soup with just a tin of beans emptied in that's a great lunch um super I I just not everybody's into this sort of thing I'm not expecting everyone else to like the same stuff as me but yeah I can't get enough of beans I feel great on them <laughs> but do you have a diet or are you consuming now in the way that you think is the right way to consume to limit the carbon footprint of products and foods and things that you buy how think, conscious are you doing that every single day when you wake up well I think basically you know what's in the house corresponds to those things that we've said so you know when I open the fridge then the options that I've got there are sort of quite limited anyway so in a way it's like creating that food environment and then you know you just that's the technical term in the research area um create that food environment which means that then when you make decisions then there's not you can't I can't like suddenly have a steak because it's not in the fridge, you know, so it's not really a decision that I'm making every single day. And what about for your kids? Because feeding children is is tough um, and they can be fussy eaters. So how do you get them on board with all of this? <laughs> I have to admit, like when I when I produce a new recipe or whatever, then they're like, 
looking at it suspiciously like where's the where's the where's the lentils in this you know there was like a a, a, a chickpea flour pizza base that I made once which that particular version was a bit of a disaster so that that's sort of gone down in the history books as being a bit of a you know <laughs> uh, but but I've perfected it since then I have to say um pea flour pizza base does actually work but anyway um yeah they <clears throat> they do get quite suspicious um and yeah I guess you know there's always a bit of bread in the freezer in case they won't eat it so yeah it is a is an issue but, but, do you, no, but really. are they on but are they on board I mean, I mean now they're older right so they're like 11 and 14 so you know it's a conversation we can have it's not like they're four and they're gonna throw it out the window sort of thing yeah <laughs> yeah welcome to my world <laughs> I do remember it well yeah <laughs> and do, do you talk to them about about the climate crisis so do they do they yeah. kind of engage with you do you engage with them about it yeah, I think the thing that shocks me most is, is I mean, you know, I guess this is anecdotal, but I've talked to a lot of other parents and, and children as well, that I'm shocked by the lack of education on this in schools. I mean, I think that, you know, it shouldn't be up to parents to have to explain this to children. I, I think it's, you know, you start to think, well, you know, what is the point of some of the other stuff, really, if we're not also talking about climate change? So that's the thing which has, has shocked me the most, I would say. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm so pleased you just said that because we have done a really interesting interview on this series with Nadia Whittam MP, who is one of the youngest MPs in Parliament, and she's made it her goal to get climate change on the curriculum in the UK, and she's fighting hard for that. But she said exactly the same thing. She said, why does the onus have to be on parents? Like, we should be making sure that this is part of the education system instead of learning about Henry VIII's wives. Um, you know, this is part of what we need to be doing. So for those of you that may not have um, listened to that episode, it's on the, um, just click on the link below and you'll be able to find it because it's a really interesting one. But I, I agree. I think it, I think everything we're talking about today, even the food systems and everything, it has to be, because I'm learning so much from this conversation, but um, I kind of feel like time's running out for our kids' generation. So they need help and access to all of this info to stay ahead of the game yeah I think you know we've been doing a, a particular project at the moment looking at you know what's the future what's what's the world going to look like in 2050 in terms of the food system and I guess you know we ended up with sort of four different scenarios in that and one of those scenarios you know we're saying well imagine that all the youth of today you know has this very strong values around you know um equity in terms of wealth distribution and, and in terms of the the, the the environment and imagine that they rise up and you know sort the world out in one of these one of these four scenarios and then I'm sort of like well you know supposing we wanted that to happen which you know it does sound quite like a good outcome you know what would we do now that would increase the chances of that happening and so you know how can we you know, there is a potentially exciting future out there. You know, this this planet could support a lot more people if we had different diets, for example. So it's not it's not all doom and gloom. But how do you change the the you know, the, how do you change what everyone's eating? Um, it's it's not an easy task, is it? So it's possible though. So how do you, Sarah? Ten years ago, Babs, I was just thinking about this. Babs came to my house. I've been crying saying the kids won't eat anything I'm tired I'm busy I've got three kids they were tiny and I was like I don't know what to feed anyone <laughs> if you were sitting with us now um because as you were saying about creating food environments hold on hold on hold on hold on hold on hold on <clears throat> that day Sarah you'll love this we did a chart we did a chart we did a food like chart and we did it Sunday 
Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And we meal plan, didn't we, to help your burden, Katie? Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what we did. So, But we did a meal plan, but we also did a shopping plan. So it was really intriguing when you were saying you use what's in the fridge type thing, you know. So if you were sitting there with us, Sarah, and Babs and I were like, oh, what do we, what are the kids? Are? What are the factors that you would kind of lob in there to, to help us make good choices about the food we're providing for our families well I think in terms of providing food for other people then you've got to work with what you know about what they like right so if you know that they already like eating spaghetti bolognese then you're like well maybe the first thing you do isn't to suddenly give them you know a tofu you know soup it's actually probably going to be right you know how can we modify that for example if we were adding in more vegetables um, tins of, of lentils for example you know it's easy to open a tin so you know in terms of time pressure not a big deal we're not necessarily taking the meat out at this stage because maybe the flavour and the familiarity, you need to keep that there, otherwise it's just going to be rejected. So thinking about quantities, I'm thinking about bulking things out with things that are good for the body as well as the planet. And as I say, I'm a bit obsessed with pulses um, like lentils. So I would just add some tins in there. And already, you know, you've just reduced the climate impact of your meal and hopefully they won't notice. And gradually, as time goes on, you can change the proportions and hopefully they'll start to get used to those flavours. So that's just one example of spaghetti bolognese. But you could also think about if you were doing, say, a chicken curry, you know, throwing in some chickpeas with that, um, you know, the things that you already eat. How can you get in some things which sort of increase the health and, you know, decrease the climate impact? Good. That's such a good advice. idea. Yeah. This book I have in my hand is by you, Sarah. Food and climate change without the hot air. Change your diet, the easiest way to help save the planet. When I was flicking through this um, and picking out various things like, for example, breakfast or eggs, it looks like a cookery book almost, but it's got, so our listeners can understand, it's got these um, charts in there, which tells me about one boiled egg and its um, emissions and then scrambled eggs and two fried eggs and I, I kind of feel like cookery books are going to be like this in the future it's incredible piece of information well done it's um comprehensive it's also quite scary in some respects when you're kind of reading it going oh god I'm having a bag of crisps and this is what it's doing to the planet or even nuts and everything that you talk about there you know to be vegan everybody thinks is going to be purist but that's really not the case um and I think it's fascinating reading this um was this a labor of love yeah, absolutely. I think it was my sort of um, survivor guilt of, um, you know, what can I do with the fact that I'm alive, you know, and how do I, why am I still here and, and David not still here? It, it, it was sort of my self-therapy, really. Um, but also my obsession in terms of, you know, I that, like all those choices that are in the book, they're choices that I was trying to make in my actual life. And I needed to do the calculation to find out, you know, should I be having the scrambled eggs or the boiled eggs or the, you know, the tofu scramble or whatever. Um, you know, that, that those are all questions I had in my own mind. And so like for cooking beans, there's a bit where I was like, oh, literally, I've got the, the monitor for the electricity to see how much my slow cooker, you know, electricity that uses compared to other options. So they're all kind of genuine worked examples, really. So that was how I was thinking. <laughs> the book that Babs has just shown us and we'll, we'll put a link in the in the show notes so people can can see the book but that was the book that you wanted to read yourself wasn't it so that's that's also you know an amazing undertaking and just to make it about me again this is the podcast that I wanted to listen to you know so I think for parents listening 
to hear your story of, you know, you, you changed career, you changed focus from the stars to the earth to try and make something, you know, you mentioned that in the beginning few years, it, you not imposter syndrome, you didn't say that, but you know, you were starting in this new field. For, I was an imposter. People, <laughs> well, yeah. for other people trying to, to think, I need to make a change, I want to make a change, this is my passion, this is what I want to do, this is what I'm obsessed with. What would you say to them based on your experience of having made a really bold career change because you couldn't ignore the climate crisis, you wanted to play your part? What words of encouragement would you give to them? Well, it's interesting. I've been in my research, um, we're working a lot on transformational change and, and there's a lot of discussion about the idea of like a, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Um, and, you know, that's talking about systems change in the world, but it also applies to individuals, I think, that, you know, actually you know the way that we're describing it here we might it might sound like I woke up one day and suddenly changed but actually I think it's really important to emphasize for anybody thinking about their own you know career and their own way of thinking that that middle bit feels pretty bad right I think we've got to be honest about that that mm. it could be like multiple years of just feeling like you're trying to do one thing but you also think you should be doing something else and should you really do something else because surely you know what right do you have to do that other thing when you've not got the training in it or whatever you know that that there could be quite a long time of, of confusion but that's not a bad thing right when you're when you're really confused and you're really trying to understand stuff that's when the good stuff happens so just sort of have that in mind if people are sort of you know feeling quite confused um to maybe I think my advice I'd give to myself anyway looking back is to sort of stick with that and don't just put my head back in the sand but just hang on in there and things gradually will become clearer thank you for not putting your head in the sand or in the stars yeah. I should say <laughs> thank you for um changing it up for us because it's been really well fascinating to chat to you but to read your book um and to just have an honest perspective that we've just got from you about you know being a mum and how you just wanted to say to your kids this is what I did and I'm doing um and also you know I suppose Sarah just to kind of ask you really why do you care so much still I mean it's quite emotional thinking about these things isn't it really you know we talk to kids about climate change and they say is it going to be okay and you can't say yes how do you deal with that as a parent I think that's so hard and I think that's what keeps me going it's just thinking you've, you've got to do something and you've got to be honest, it's, I, have, I find I have to be honest, and so I have to be able to say, look, there's this, this and this that we're, we're trying to do, but I also think often we think about crises and we imagine like there's a day when it all suddenly goes wrong and then it's disaster after that, but actually crises in history, for example, aren't like that, they last a long time, life actually carries on but in a different way, so I think a lot of what we're doing at the moment um, a lot of the narrative seems to be we need to fix climate change or else. And that or else is very frightening. And we don't really talk about what that or else actually is. I don't really know how to talk about that, but I think we need to do more talking about that because actually things like, for example, you know, do we all know how to grow food if we have to grow food suddenly, like you're doing, Katie? You know, what, what actually are we teaching our children about where food comes from? 
to, you know, we're so disconnected from where our food comes from at the moment. We just, you know, there's people saying, I can't eat this potato, it's dirty, not knowing it's mud and that's normal. You know, this is, this is such a, a big problem we've got in our society that we don't value the food we've got. We waste food because we don't realize how much effort farmers are going to, to produce this food. So I think that there's a, I don't know how we solve that, but I feel like there's a, a lot more conversation and a lot more we can do with that that isn't quite as depressing as maybe I'm making out to be. <laughs> Professor Sarah Briddle there on the power of food and climate change. Join us next time where we talk life, inspiration and politics with Clive Lewis MP. Clive has been campaigning to put climate action at the centre of the political agenda. But is it all just blah, 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 as Greta said, or can politics really equal change? Join us and Clive to find out more. See you then. Mum, will the planet die before I do? Is a Corner Shop media production presented and produced by Babita Sharma, Katie Glasborough and edited by Nisha Patel.